So good morning, everyone. Good morning. I think we'll have people take seats if they can. And while you're taking your seats, I will take the opportunity to do some commercializing. So you've, you've heard Pastor Van make mention from the pulpit, and you've been reading in your bulletin about the Evening Bible Institute classes. Let me just say, and not, not only because one of the people on here happens to look like me on the inside. I'm saying this, even if, even if it wasn't me on the inside flap, that this is a wonderful opportunity to help get grounded in the Word of God, to learn what the Bible says, and to put the pieces of the Bible together. What I mean by that is the, the Bible isn't just a, a, a bookshelf of 66 different books that all say something different, but they all connect together. And by taking courses uh, through a place like the Evening Bible Institute, you can learn how to put the pieces together. And the two courses that are taught this, this coming fall, The Gospel According to John by Dr. Jim Shupi. John is an incredibly easy book. A three-year-old can understand it. But you know what? A 100-year-old person who's been saved for 90 years can't plumb the depths of it. So there's a lot to that book to, to increase your, your uh, knowledge and experience in Jesus Christ. And the, the other one, the Pentateuch taught by, who's that? Oh yeah, Tom Jester, and that's who's teaching that one. The, the first five books of the Bible. You know, every doctrine of the Christian faith starts in the Pentateuch. Every problem man's ever encountered starts and is explained in the Pentateuch. If you've been paying attention to the sermon series that Pastor Van has been teaching on Matthew chapter 5, guess where a lot of those, those scriptures come from? That, that where Jesus says, you've heard it said, which is rightly so, and now I'm going to give you a, the principle behind that. I say to you, where does that come from? Where do you think? The Pentateuch. I think you're getting it. So it's incredibly foundational to everything that we believe in those first five books of the Bible. Everything about sin and about redemption and about what waits for us. Where do you think you find that? Independent. See, you've already passed your first quiz. See how easy this class is? So I'm encouraging you that if you, if you want to get some grounding in what the scriptures say about who we are and what, who God is and what waits for us, take the course in the Pentateuch. John's pretty good too. You can take that one. So I'm going to send these brochures around. I'm not going to ask who wants one. I'm just going to send them around and, and maybe God will, will prick your heart and say, I need to take one of these and consider it. The registration information is on the ins on the back cover and the classes begin in a couple of weeks. And if you have questions, I don't know if Dr. Shupi is here today, but I'm around and if you have questions, please ask and I'd be happy to tell you about them. So if you feel like you want one, take one. We have more. So if, the, if these run out, there are plenty more of those. So the question in our Sunday school uh, class for the summer, the answers, or I guess you can call it the questions class, is do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? And you know what, we can get out of here really quickly and I'll just say no, let's pray, and then you can go and get coffee and whatever else. So that, that's the quick answer, and I think most of the people that are coming in here today would say, I, I think I know the answer to that one. But there's a reason that we're looking at this question, and the reason has to do with the plan, or at least what we intend to accomplish today. And first is, why does this question even matter? You know, we already know where we're coming from on this. Why does it matter? I want to give some reasons why we know. I mean, we may say, no, you know, Allah and, and God, Allah of Islam, God of the scriptures are not the same. But what is it that we can say about that? And why is that the case? And I'm going to give what I would call an in-house 
explanation. And what I mean by in-house is it's kind of just for us. Because if you say some of these things to a person outside of this house, they may raise some issues and they may not appreciate the way in which it's said. But I think we need to have more of a, of a, of a full explanation of what's going on. And then the third reason, and I was, since this is the second reason is an in-house explanation, I can call the third reason an outhouse explanation, but that probably has some connotations to it that I don't want to go through. So instead of calling it an outhouse uh, reason, uh, what, who is it that we worship and how can that be used to explain to others why there is a difference. And instead of focusing on the negative and the differences, who is this God that we worship and how can we put that in a way that honors God and explains who we, who it is that, that we worship. So that's the plan for today and we'll see how far we get with this. So let's start off with why does this matter? Well, it matters because there's a contemporary blurring of the lines. And I don't know if you keep up with what's happening uh, in the news, but more and more you see a, a blurring of what it is that is the difference between Christianity and Islam. Even one of our pre- recent presidents had said after the incidences that happened in early 2000 that brought Islam to such prominence, uh, President Bush had said, well, first of all, I believe in an almighty God, and I believe that in all the world, whether they be Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, praise to the same God, that's what I believe. And that unfortunately becomes a statement that people adhere to and say, well, you know, if a person like George Bush says that, maybe there's some credence to it. And um, I, I, this is one thing I kind of wish that he did not say. There's also an increasing use of uh, the word and, and, and the phrase Chrislam in the world. Has anyone heard of Chrislam? Actually, you just heard of it now, so you should all be raising your hand. You just heard of it. I just said it. So what do you think, even if you haven't heard of it, what do you think Chrislam means? Chrislam is, a, yeah, I already see some people going like this. If you're going like this, what is it joining? Christianity and... And, and Islam, yeah. So there's some kind of a, of a, a use of this where... They're looking at where the common ground is. And you know, there, there's, there's nothing wrong with trying to, to love your enemies and even love your neighbors, love your friends. That's what we're called to do. But when you start trying to find out where the common ground comes, you may end up compromising in the end. In doing some more uh, study for this class, I found out, of all things, Chrislam as a name started in the country of Nigeria in the 1970s. So as a missionary to Nigeria, I was kind of surprised that Chrislam started there as a, as a real and, and legitimate religion. Uh, and we see where it comes from. If this is the case that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, it sort of dampens Muslim evangelism. Why do you have to evangelize somebody who already believes in the same God and might end up, if they're a sincere believer in that God, end up in the same place that we are? Why bother them and disturb them? Also, there are some, uh, there are some groups that are forming alliances today and some, even some evangelicals that are signing on to statements uh, about the, the commonality between Christian, Christianity and Islam where part of that statement, a part of that agreement is we're not going to proselytize each other. In order to break down the walls and break down the barriers and, and get rid of some of the stereotypes, um, we, we need to not bother the other by evangelizing them or by proselytizing them. And of course, as, uh, as part of our in-house explanation, I think we understand that there's a problem with that. And lastly, it dilutes the truth of the God that we worship. When we start, when we start comparing 
our God, as we're going to see, to other gods and start trying to mix and match and, and, and try and find common ground with a place in uh, an area where there is no common ground, it distorts and dilutes and detracts from the God that we worship. So it is an important concept. But I think also we need to know why this is the case. Because again, as was mentioned early on, the answer to the question is, an, is a quick and simple no. We don't worship the same God. But why is that? And by knowing why that difference is there, we can appreciate and, and undilute the God that we worship. So let's start Allah as revealed in the Quran. So as we look at how he's revealed, it might be surprising uh, for some that even though the, we know where the answer is going, where do the Muslims get the idea of who their God is and who Allah is? Here's a basic theology text. Notice a little dot, dot, dot at the end. That means obviously I didn't include everything. But that's a common way of, of debating, isn't it? You don't give all the information at first and you give what, what people would agree to. Here's a basic theology text from the Quran, from Surah. Surah means a chapter, chapter 112. This is only the first two verses. There are four verses in that Surah. Say, which is proclaim, that's what you see in a lot of the, the Quranic texts, say, He is Allah, the one and only, Allah, the eternal, absolute. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, maybe we do worship the same God. Let's answer yes, and then I'll go out and eat, uh, eat uh, pastries and drink coffee. Because when you look at the nature of Allah in a lot of the Quranic texts, He is, over and over again, looked at as the only God, eternal and uncreated, merciful and gracious. In fact, almost every beginning prayer and every beginning statement in the name of Allah, the most merciful, the most gracious. He is the creator of the universe and all that is in it, who created Adam from clay and Eve from Adam. He reveals himself to man through the prophets, starting from Adam, working all the way through, uh, through the ones that we know very well, David and Moses and Jesus Christ, and, and lastly through Muhammad. He answers, he hears and answers the prayers of his people. He forgives people of their sin. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise. There's the omnis that we talk about in Christianity, uh, omniscient and omnipotent. The all-wise is omnisapient. And he will judge, he will judge the world, all people in it. And at the end of the age, all people will spend eternity in one place or the other. They will spend eternity with Allah in paradise, or they will spend eternity separated from him in hell. Well, any problems with that? Anyone, anyone have a theological issue saying, wait, that doesn't sound like the God we worship? Every one of these statements, I would have to say, is, is accurate, isn't it? And when you look at a, a listing like this, it would be easy to say, hmm, maybe we do worship the same God. Maybe, I don't see a difference between Allah as shown in the Quran and, and Yahweh as shown in the Bible. Maybe, maybe they are the same. Well, the problem is, and I think you know where, where I might be going with this, the problem is, this is part of the story. Okay. What, what, was, what was the show, the radio show that Paul Harvey said? Now you know the rest of the story? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Uh, at least explain to you why there is a difference. So here's the first part. Let's go on and look at the second part. Let's revisit that basic theology text in Surah 112. Say, He is Allah, the one and only. Allah, the eternal, the absolute, he begets not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Line one, no problem. Line two, no problem. Line three, 
sure, God is eternal and absolute. Skip down to the last one, there is none like him. Ah, but then we get to that little sticky part in line four. He begets not, nor is he begotten. Good old King James Version language there. What do you think that's getting at? Let me, I'm going to ask you to respond here. What is, what is that getting at? He begets not, and if you haven't gotten your King James dictionary in front of you, maybe some other people might be able to help. He begets not, nor is he begotten. What is that talking about? Any ideas? Yeah, what? Yeah, there's already a problem. So this verse is almost like saying, I know what the Christians believe. Let's make sure that there's a distinction put here. That he doesn't have a son. God doesn't have sons. God doesn't do anything according to that mode that we normally think of as, as having children. And he's, he has not been created by anybody else. So do not say that anyone who is created, wait, do not say that anyone who is begotten, that they are God. So who do you think this is really directly referencing? It's referencing Jesus. So although there may be a lot of points of comparison and a lot of similarity, there are some real tough, irreconcilable sticking points. So let's look a little more then at the nature of Allah. Apart from those ones that we agree with, Allah has no equal. He has no partner. There is none like Him. And we would, we would have to agree with that, wouldn't, wouldn't we? That, who is like unto me, would the Lord say? But then it goes on from there that he is absolutely, the word is transcendent. It's a word we don't often use in English conversation very much with our co-workers. Uh, but what does the, anyone have an idea what the word transcendent means? Above, that begins to get the idea. But it is so far above that it is beyond anything that is like us whatsoever. It's, call it this way, it's, it's out of our league. So Allah is absolutely transcendent. Is that, true of, is that true of our God, that He's transcendent, that He's out of our league, that He's above and beyond us? Yeah. That, well, some people are shaking their head no, some are shaking their head yes. Uh, God, God is transcendent. But the difference with Allah is that, the, that no, uh, He is so transcendent that it's not possible to have personal interaction with Him uh, as part of His creation. That it's apples and oranges, and the fruits don't mix. So here is a great transcendent God who would not even condescend to his creation to have any kind of a relationship or personal interaction. There's a lot of interaction. Some of it's related to judgment. Some of it's related to bestowing the food and basic needs. But there's no real relationship there. In fact, he's so transcendent that he's almost unknowable. No human being ever develops a personal relationship with Allah. Uh-huh, Dave? Well, where do we find that? We find that... Yeah, the question is, what, what do they do with the story about Abraham and he was a friend of God? A lot of names are the same in the Bible and the Quran. The names may be the same, but the stories may not actually match up the way we look at it. And there's a lot of things that are missing. What they would say about something like that in the Bible is that it was corrected through the Quranic texts. So... Yeah, the, the, the name's the same. The story may sound similar, but even in that case, um, Abraham's son of promise is Ishmael, not Isaac. So then it starts to spiral out of, out of control from there. So 
obviously, from, from something that Dave just said, we have a different perspective of God than what is, uh, what is re- supposedly revealed in the Quran. So, really, there's God up here, man down here, and it's, it's almost like, and this is probably an oversimplification, but it's almost like the, the way that we interact with our pets, or the way we interact with other species. You know, we may grant them things and, and we use language like, oh, you know, they really love me and something like that. But really, you know, are we, unless you're weird, are you going to love your pet the way you love another human being? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, if you think about that, take it to its logical end point. Are you going to love your pet the way you love another human being? You may care for them, they may be really important, really special. But really, there's some cross-species going on there. And when, when, when you have Allah and, and humans, that's a, that's a cross-species going on there. The God of Islam could never and is never called Father because He's too great and majestic. In fact, if, if He were to be called our Father, that would be demeaning to Him because that would mean putting Him in the, in the place of making us sons and God does not, Allah does not beget. He doesn't have sons. That's too, that's too demeaning, too condescending for him. So no Muslim would call Allah Father. We can see even in our own Christian reading of, the, of both the Old and New Testaments, how the fatherhood of God is so different from the Im, more impersonal attributes of Allah. Imagine what it would do to the heart of a Muslim who converts for the first time ever to be say, to say in prayer, my Father who is in heaven. I mean, it's something that we, we long for and we desire and is precious to us, but it's something that's missing in the relationship between a, a, a devout Muslim and their God, Allah. The creation of the heavens and the earth is the greatest of the creation. In fact, in the, in the Quran, it says that mankind is nowhere near as great as the creation of the heaven and the earth. You compare that to our own situation, where we read in, in Genesis accounts, both the, the, the account in chapter 1 and a, and a different version of the account in chapter 2. And if those confuse you, if the account of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 confuse you, how do you think you can get, avoid that confusion? Take a Pentateuch class. But anyway, in, in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, the highlight of creation is man. But in the Quran, the highlight of creation is everything else apart from man. And we're going to see some other, uh, some other statements later on that put man in his proper place in, in the Quranic texts. People were created. If I were to ask you as a, as a Christian, as a believer in, in the God of the, of the biblical text that, that we know and that we use as our authority, what is the reason that man was created? We'll get into that question a little bit later. Think about that. But if you're, a, if you're a Muslim, the reason that man is created is very clearly given in the Quran. Man was created for the sole purpose of worshiping Allah. And we're going to see how that differs from what the Bible says about the reason that we were created. When you think about a person um, at work, person in your household, a friend, when you think about them, you know how there's like certain personality traits that come up. 
And if I were to, you know, if I were to say to, you know, to, uh, to Heidi, what is my main personality trait? It's like the overriding thing that I'm known for. I'm not going to ask her to do that right now. But anyway, you get, the, you get the point. Maybe you would not want your spouse to say what your overriding character trait or personality trait is. But if you read through the Quranic texts and then later on through the traditions of the, of, of the Islamic faith in what's called the Hadith, the traditions of Islam, the primary attribute of, of Allah is that of power. God of Islam does not love sinners, only those who fear him. And over and over and over again, and as much as, much as I've read the Quran, it's kind of, it's depressing to read about this, this oppressive God. I mean, the word love shows up a lot in there. Graciousness shows up a lot in there. But this loving and gracious God only loves those who obey and fear Him. In fact, several times in, in the Quran it says who, God does, who Allah does not love. He doesn't love the disobedient. He doesn't love unbelievers. He doesn't love sinners. He doesn't love transgressors. He doesn't love liars. He doesn't love this and He doesn't love that. But He sure has the power to make your life miserable if you don't agree. Huh? Yeah. Jerry? What? Would... what? He's in paradise. But he's all over. You can't contain. You can't contain Allah. What they would call paradise. Yeah. Well, there. You know, there you're going to get into some interesting situations too, as to where it is. And and, and, and to be honest, we would have. We'll have that. We can have that same kind of uh, of discussion. Where do you think we can have that same kind of discussion from the Christian uh, perspective? Actually, not in the Pentateuch on that one. <laughs> Actually, yes, we can. I was. I was kidding. Yeah, you can get that one from the Pentateuch too. But your, your question would be equally discussable among both, among both religions. But you can't contain Allah, so why would he be in one place? Just like you know, the heavens can't contain, can't, can't contain the God that we worship. So lastly, the God of Islam never promises grace only justice. And I, highlight, I highlighted the word promises for a reason. What was, if you were in the first service, what was the last hymn that we sang? As we were being dismissed, what was the last hymn that we sang? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace is greater than all my... We have a promise of God to be gracious to us. In, in Islam, even Muhammad had to say, I don't know if Allah will be gracious to me. So God is gracious not by promise, but God is gracious by his own decision that, Dave, you're going to receive grace, and Gary, you are not. There is really no promise and there is no assurance at the end. That's the difference between a promise. They, the Muslims can say, in the name of Allah, most merciful and most gracious, but you have no, you have no confidence that you're going to receive that grace. Does this sound like the same, does it sound like the God that we worship? But then it gets a little bit darker. The nature of Allah is that He is absolutely sovereign. When we use the word sovereign, what does, that, what does the word sovereign mean? Anyone have a thumbnail definition of sovereign? You can do anything He wants. Yeah, you can do anything He wants. You know, and if you want a fuller definition of what the sovereignty of God means, where do you think you can get that? Pentateuch, yes. Thank you for that answer. You just whispered it, but I, I heard it enough that it counts. Okay. However, God is, what sovereignty means in this context is that he is so sovereign that, and since he can do whatever he wants to do and no one can tell him that he's doing anything wrong, he can lie, he can deceive, he can manipulate 
uh, this situation. He is completely arbitrary. He can humiliate and kill as he wants. And you know why it's right? Because he's Allah. And who can tell Allah that he's doing anything wrong? When I read some of the um, some of the Islamic scholars' websites, to, to I, I want to see how they answer some of the questions. Also, when I read their 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 answers, a lot of times uh, at the end of their answers, they will say something like, "Because Allah knows what is best." So even if you don't like the answer. Allah knows what is best. In fact, some of the answers, I've seen some of their answers. Some of their answers are, you shouldn't really be asking this question because it's going to lead you to doubt and unbelief. And if we can't understand it, that's our problem because Allah knows best. So because he does something, because God does something, it's right. You understand what I'm saying on on that one? He determines every action. He determines every circumstance of life. If you get a flat tire, how did that happen? Allah willed it. If you have a sick child, how did that happen? Allah willed it. If you're rich and prosperous, how did that happen? Allah willed it. If you sneezed, how did that happen? You know, it, it, it gets down to that. A phrase that we hear, we, uh, I think most of, you, most of you know who we are, but in case you don't, we're, uh, we're missionaries in Nigeria. We live in a very Islamic section of the world. And the phrase that we commonly hear, no matter what's happening, for good or bad, is, Inshallah, God wills it. Are you, uh, you can say, oh, are you going to go to the market today? I'm going to the market, inshallah, you know, if, you know, if, if God wills it. Or whatever happens, which has, a, has some, some implications to it. If something bad happens to you, and I cause that, th- that bad thing to happen to you, it's not really me that caused it to you, it's through Allah. So you can't really hold me to, to account for that very much. So there's, I mean, in one hand, it creates a way of getting through life without too much difficulty because you know everything happens as a result of Allah. But on the other hand, you can't really understand what God is going to do in your life. In fact, it goes even further than that. In the Quran, it says that he is the ultimate deceiver and the plotter and the schemer, far better than any of his creation. In the Quranic text, it's, and if you read the Quranic an- or the Islamic scholars' answer to this, they would say, "Well, yes, but Allah only plots and schemes and lies to unbelievers. But to believers, He would never do that." Even though there's contradictions, even in the Quran, where Allah lies to Muhammad about certain things, He changes as needed, and that includes His word. If you read the Quran and some some verses of the Quran, and, and if you read it chronologically, the earlier Earlier verses in the Quran talk about tolerance of other people and tolerance of other, other religions. Later in the Quran, when Muhammad endured persecution, when people didn't believe him, when he didn't get the hero's welcome that he thought he was going to get as a prophet of God, things get very dark. And that's when you read texts that talk about uh, not tolerating other people's religions. Unless, and the only reason you should have other religions around you is if they either uh, will convert to Islam or they pay a tax. Otherwise, they shouldn't be allowed to live among you. How can you have contradictory phrases like that? Because Allah decided it. That for this time it was this way, and a couple years later it was for this. Allah can change as He needs to. That includes His Word, because, inshallah, God wills it. And who can say that He's wrong? You compare that to the unchangeable God and the unchangeable Word of the God that we worship. So Dave, you're like really... Yeah, like, just a question about the law. Is there any declaration of moral law in Islam? 
Well, there's lots of declarations of moral law. And a lot of the things that are true in Islam, we would find it as, as a declaration of moral law among ourselves about lying, about killing, about stealing, about purity, and, and they, they would even go beyond some of what, what we would consider. So there's lots of declarations of moral law, but there's also kind of ways you, ways you get around that at, at times. So, but, but a lot of the morality within Islam if you were to pick, if you wanted to pick the things that are equal, we would find a lot of the of the moral code of Islam lines up, especially with what you find in the Pentateuch, and then later on, what Christians are supposed to do to act as as the people of God. So you would find a lot of commonality, just like that first nature of God uh, slide. But then you're also going to find some other areas of diversion later on. So, uh huh. No. It's borrowed and altered a bit. It's like that. It's like that. You know that game telephone where you tell where you know I would tell you a message and then you would whisper it to the next person, next person, next, and it comes out differently by the time it's at the end. I think that within what you're saying about Islam not being anything new, there are stories that were heard about uh, stories that were heard from Christians that were traveling through Arabia at the time, Jews that Muhammad would have known, and then you hear that you can't remember it perfectly, then you say what you think the story says, and you end up with Ishmael being the promised son of Abraham and and Pharaoh ordering the Jews to build a tower that rises up to the heavens and something like that. So uh, there's you get mixes and matches of things. It's a you know they talk, they call songs say like a mashup song where you mash up different songs. Well, there's like Bible mashup in in a lot of the Old Testament scriptures, which is why a lot of those moral codes are are in existence. And if I had more time, I would I would get into why that's the case um, and the idolatry and rampant immorality that was going on in Arabia at the time which Muhammad wanted to try and address and it turned out as we see it today with uh, some of the, the videos that are uh, over the internet Allah is the creator of evil because he's the creator of everything he breathes into everyone their wickedness and their good so truly who is responsible for their sin yeah but you really but, but to say that is like oh that's really not fair but that's the conclusion you would have to get into. There's a uh, section of the Quran where, where Allah causes men to sin in order to destroy their city, and He ordains everyone their portion of adultery. I tell you, you want to you get off the hook. What better way is there to get off the hook than to say, Allah made me do it. <laughs> and this is interesting that, that uh-huh, Tim... Yeah. And some some would say that, but not everybody. If you really want to know about that hardening bit about Pharaoh, take a Pentateuch class because that'll tell you about that one. <laughs> and, and the other part about sovereign election, there are some ideas about that one too. But some of that might be the way that we understand something. And right, you're saying it seems absurd and laughable, and and I'm bringing out some of the the, the more stark contrast in the way it goes. But here's again, if you're taking a poorly understood concept and you're rolling it into a new religion here's, here's the end result of a poorly understood concept 
But we, none of us would say, no matter what you would say about sovereign election, none of us would say that God portions uh, our, our, or God ordains to us our portion of adultery. No one would say, even taking an extreme view of sovereign election, that God makes me sin. You know, so there, there's, a, there's a difference in that one. And then lastly, it's interesting that this comes up after the message that, was, uh, that, that Pastor Van gave this morning and what you'll hear in the second service is that Allah asserts his truthfulness by swearing to the sky, the moon, the stars, the Quran, man's record, you know, by the heavens, and then he'll make some kind of a statement. Well, isn't that interesting that that's the exact opposite of what we just heard about truth-telling and, and, and the oath-taking of the one that we worship? So in the names of Allah, some would sound very similar to what we know, the all-compassionate, the all-merciful, the just and the holy, the most high, the creator, the forgiver. One of, my, one of the more interesting ones is the resurrector, the first and the last. Where do you think these come from? Again, that, that little tangent, those little tentacles of truth that kind of match up with things that may have been heard by somebody somewhere. The ever-living, the eternal one, the Lord of majesty. There's nine, uh, in, in Islam, there are 99 names of God. And they say that the, the hundredth name is only known by the camel. That's why the camel has a smile on his face. So, and and when, you, when you see a Muslim in, in, in some uh, majority countries where they're the majority population, a lot of times you'll see them with, with prayer beads. It's not like, the, it's not like the, the, the Roman Catholic prayer beads where each of those stand for a prayer. Each of those stand for a name of Allah. And as they're going through the prayer beads like this, they're actually thinking about the different names of Allah. Those are some of the names. And one time I did a comparison of the names of Allah and the names of God, and especially related to Jesus Christ. And wow, there's some striking uh, commonalities. There's also some striking differences. He's the abaser, the humiliator, the killer, the distressor, the dominator, the overwhelming character trait of Allah uh, or the overwhelming, the overwhelming character trait of Yahweh is someone who yearns to draw creation back to himself. The overwhelming character trait of Allah is a domineering God whose wrath is only restrained by his capricious will because you never know what you're going to get at the end of the day. And right, Tim, I'm making a very stark dichotomy, but this, I'm going to try and uh, show why you can't say that the God that we worship is anywhere close to what is supposed to be the God of, of Islam. Yahweh's names and attributes, his divine attributes, the way he works them, the way they work in humanity, say, I want to be with you. It starts all the way from the very beginning when, when, when Yahweh is walking in the cool of the day with his, with his created beings, the height and the, the, the epitome of his creation, Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way to, and then uh, there are some other verses that I can show you. We ought to write them down and look them up later. Every movement of God says, I want to be with you and I want you to be with me. The overwhelming corresponding picture of, of Islam is, I have the power to devastate you, so you better fear me. What does that do? What does that do to a worshiper of Allah in their day-to-day, month-to-month, and year-to-year practice? If this is the God that you worship, respond to this. What is that going to do to you, to your perspective on life as a, as a worshiper of, of Allah with this nature? How would you respond to that? So you're going to live in a lot of fear. There's really no hope, is there? Yeah. There's what? Anger toward who? (laughs) 
Okay, so yeah, you could be angry at life because there's nothing you can do to get out of it. Anything that happens to you happens to you. You can't admit to any of that, of course, because to admit to that is to tell Allah that he's wrong and Allah knows best. So then you have a lot, you're swallowing this. God and man's relationship in the Quran, um, there's a, I'll, I'll read through this really quickly. This is what from a, a Muslim blog, this is not a scholar, but it's someone who wrote as if they were scholarly and other people seem to agree with it. Allah brought every one of us into the world from a mere drop of fluid. A fluid is considered dirty, lowly, and worthy of being washed off and discarded, which emanates from a part of the body that is also kept hidden and considered shameful. That's, those are all, that's just a, 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 a summary of Quranic texts. And those are, that's an accurate summary. A part that excretes the filth from our bodies. Furthermore, when a human baby comes into this world, it again does so through the same anatomical part of the mother's body. Allah reminds man again and again of his lowly and inferior origins of his first and subsequent creation in order to cull his arrogance and reinforce his belief in Allah's absolute power of creation and resurrection. How do you feel now about yourself? Again, if this is, if this is your pattern of worship, and is this, if this is what you expect day to day, week to week, and year to year, it starts to create a, a mentality about yourself. You feel good about yourself after this? Yeah, Paul? This just totally flies in the face of the creation That's because you're not, that's because you are much more lowly than the stars and the heavens and everything else. Which is the exact opposite of saying, when I consider the sun and the stars, what is man that you're even mindful of him? So the, the, the scriptures exalt our position in creation. And everything here is sort of saying, you know what, you better keep your place because you're but a worm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and if you, if you go down that road. Now, again, there are other people that would say, oh, but isn't it great that Allah still has grace and mercy on this type of a being? But you can't get through, you, you can't divorce this idea from the complete picture of who man is. If anything, when I, when I pasted this again from, from, that, from that blog, I thought again of how great it would be if there was open dialogue to be able to present to Muslims exactly what it is the Bible says about God. And just that the, the dignity that humans would have as part of the creation of God would resonate within their souls and they would say, I, I need to listen to the rest of this message because this is what we weren't created to have this said about us. We were created in a way that says God made us special and He made us for a purpose which is to have a relationship with Him. Anyway, we see where man and God's relationship is going. We're made in God's image and God's likeness. The Quran doesn't say that. One ambiguous tradition says that we're made in, in, in the image of God. And even not all Muslims believe in that. So, same or different? What do you think? Here are the unique, let me just go through quickly the unique qualities of our, of our biblical God. And I think this will probably be available on, on the uh, FBC website, so if you want to get the scriptures later on. There is really only one God. We say that as, as, the, as the Muslims would say it, but He's eternally existent in three persons. That's where we get into the Trinity. If you want to understand the Trinity better, what course do you think you can take? The Gospel according to John. That one you'll do, you'll do much better dealing with the Trinity in the Gospel according to John than you will in Pentateuch. Truth and labeling there. 
And there's a whole other Sunday school class coming up on the explanation of the doctrine, doctrinal statement of Fellowship Bible Church coming up in the fall. So if you really, uh, if you really need to get these things down a little more, that's going to be the Sunday school class for you. That's why I didn't put much in there. Our God is a covenant-keeping and trustworthy God. And there are several scriptures in there which talk about I'm the covenant-keeping God. And I'm not like I'm, God is not like a man that he should lie and other scriptures related to that. We know for sure, which is why we're meeting here today, that God does have a son. And he sent his son to die for us. God's human-directed purpose is out of relationship from all those verses, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. God says, I want to be with you. God extends himself on our behalf in unconditional love. See, the God that we worship doesn't love only those who, believe, who, who, who do right. If God only loved those who do right, how many people would he truly love? You read, I'm not going to read it because of time, but you look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. And that is a, a great picture of a loving Heavenly Father who like teaching their children how to walk. I took, them by the, I took Ephraim by the hand and taught Ephraim how to walk. And that's, that's the care and the love and the relationship that God has with His people. So it was a great devotional exercise. When you're, when you're feeling like God doesn't care about you, read Hosea 11 verses 1 through 4. And what He says about Ephraim, what He says about Israel, is what He's saying about us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God, in 1 John 4, 10, God commends that we love him, not because we love God, but he first loved us. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, not Allah, not anyone else. There is no God beside you. There is no Allah. He's a, he's a, a way of distracting people from the true God, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you because uh, we can know you. We're not wondering about your relationship to us. We're not the, the lowest of your creation, but we're precious in your sight. So precious, Lord, that you uh, desire and you come back to us again and again. Even when we fail you, even when we humiliate you and, and abase your name, you still call out to us. You still uh, reach out with your gracious arms to call us to yourself to restore that relationship we thank you for the the truth of scripture that we have a god who is um, who does keep his word who does care about us who is trustworthy a god who uh, is so desirous of a relationship with us that uh, that you sent your son to, to take care of our problem of offense toward you our penalty of offense toward you we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you most of all for, uh, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the eternally God himself, who loved us and gave himself for us, who uh, is the epitome of love and the epitome of, of what it means to be, uh, to be the people of God. We thank you for all these blessings, for these truths. Make them real to us, Lord, and help us to get a greater appreciation for the God that we worship. Not that we worship a set of theological propositions, but we worship, uh, we worship a, uh, a God who is personal. And we worship a God who uh, is in us, us in Him. So close that the Scriptures can, can only marvel at the way that you desire to, to have our, uh, our relationship with you. 
We give you thanks for all these blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.